consider now another person's story in, in the Bible. As Winetta mentioned last week, we looked at, at Moses. And today we're going to take a look at uh, another lady's life. We heard a bit about Winetta's this morning. We'll look a bit about Ruth's life. We're not going to be exhaustive in Ruth's life-changing life encounter with God. <clears throat> but, uh, but we are going to consider it. Uh, today. We're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 1. As you open up your Bibles, I don't have it on PowerPoint this morning, so either get out your phone or if you have a physical copy of what's called the Bible, uh, too, you're welcome to turn to that. And if you do, you know, you, you'll go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, <laughs> that's the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible that Moses uh, authored and is about his his life story. And as we saw last week, he led God's people right to the edge of the promised land, just the river Jordan separating them, and then his life came to an end. He had an amazing encounter with God multiple times throughout his life, a huge figure as well. And what's so refreshing in part about Ruth is that she's rather obscure, other than the fact that she shows up here, and there's a, a book of the Bible named after her. You have these large uh, Larger-than-life figures, or they're normal people in, in the Bible, and absolutely. Um, and what does it look like to encounter God for them, too? We get a glimpse of that with Ruth. Now, after Joshua led, when Moses died, the people into the Promised Land, a, a campaign of claiming the land that God had promised them, and he also dies uh, at the end of Joshua. And then you open up to the book of Judges. And Judges is a time of lawlessness. And the theme, the repeated theme of Judges is what? Everybody did what was right in his or her own eyes. So this is the wild, wild west, as it were. This is that Jeremiah 17 uh, heart issue. The heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all else. Who can cure it? And left without uh, the, the, the law and the leadership, this is what happens in the land. And it's chaos. I mean, the book of Judges is kind of, I mean, really it's sort of a good teenage boy read. Um, there's lots of uh, blood and guts type experiences, you know. Um, kind of one person being like a job of the hut type person who's slain by a dagger that goes into his folds. It's kind of graphic and pretty awesome if you like that sort of stuff but it wouldn't be fantastic I'm guessing to live during that time because nothing feels very safe and when we look at, at the book of, of Ruth the very first mention of the context for the Ruth as you see in chapter 1 verse 1 is that in the days when the judges ruled that's in the days when everybody was doing whatever was right in his or her own eyes and God would raise up somebody he'd respond to the cry of his people you remember in Exodus chapter 3 God says I've heard the cry of my people and I've res I'm responding to them well this is the cyclical pattern in Judges too their sin it's just it's a, a same old pattern sin leads to oppression and they cry out to God Zach. They, they, they God save us and he sends a deliverer and they're rescued from their oppression, and then they just do it all over again. And this is the cycle the judges is in. And Ruth gives us a little glimpse of kind of an ordinary person's life in the midst of that time when things are running out of control. 
What is life like? An ordinary life with a more typical storyline. And as we read Ruth, you'll see, and even just reflect on its larger message, that there is a lot of disappointment in the book of Ruth. There's some romance in there. There's uh, empty pantries. And you know, like I say sometimes, not the kind where your kids say there's no food here and it's lined with food. They just don't like it. There literally is no food. This is during a famine. This is survival mode. It's Lord of the Flies. There's unemployment in this book. The struggle for survival. There's death. There's relocation. You know, going somewhere else to a completely different country. And of course, there's perseverance and intrigue and friendship and loyalty. It's all packed into four chapters. If you haven't read this book ever before, then I recommend you do, especially on the back end of the message today to try to put it all together. But really, Ruth is a picture that this is the stuff of life where God is at work. The, the real life encounters with God have been so, so amazing with dreams and burning bushes. And this is just ordinary life. There's no toilet paper at the local shopping market. Is God still here? How do we live and make faith our own in the midst of that reality? This is why Ruth is such a refreshing book in many instances. So let's read chapter 1 and then just draw some observations from, from this book together about Ruth's life-changing encounter with God and particularly making faith your own. So I'm reading from the New International Version, and here's, here's how Ruth 1 goes. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you 
or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of God. Father, would you be with us now as we take a look at this uh, together and your living and active word and allow us to learn from it and for it to continue to uh, encounter, uh, for us to continue to encounter the life-changing God who speaks to us through his word and by his spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Wow, I always think about that statement when Naomi comes back and says, you know, they say, is this Naomi? And she says, yeah, don't call me Naomi. Call me, call me bitter. She's changed her name because I went away full and I'm, I'm empty. And Ruth has left absolutely everything for her. And I think of what Ruth's perspective is at that moment when she hears her mother-in-law She's left everything, and the mom, mother-in-law says, yeah, I haven't come back with anything. Oh, what, what is Ruth thinking? They're like, whoa, wait a second. I left everything uh, for you, and bitterness will do that, right? It will take away the clear vision of God's provision along the way. But Ruth is, an, is, is a, a fascinating character. So when we talk about her life-changing encounter with God, making faith your own, let's, let's consider sort of how that is unpacked here in chapter 1 and spilling over to some others as well, just with a couple of, of statements here. And, and the first thing that we really see in this statement, uh, in this story of Ruth, is that you can actually belong before you believe. You can belong before you believe. Now, as you were reading, you notice Naomi loses her husband and two sons. They fled their own land due to a famine. All in the first five verses, she's left with two daughters-in-law from Moab. And there's a map to kind of show you sort of where it is in relationship to Bethlehem. It's on the other side there of the, 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 the Dead Sea. And, and, and it's, it's off kind of a way. It's not a part of that promised land. That would be to the left of this space here as well. The Moabites, in other words, do not follow Yahweh. That's not, uh, oftentimes, in biblical times, you have regional gods uh, attached to a particular country, and that wasn't Moab. They followed a different god. Last week we saw Moses hear the self-declaration of the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, uh, the God of the nations, because there's so many times, even in the book of Jonah, which Eric was, was dealing with, where God shows he's not a regional God because he's breathed life into everyone. And so much of the Old Testament motif, like Elijah up on the mountain, shows God's the God of everything, not limited to one particular land or even one particular 
people, but nonetheless calling a people aside to show what it looks like to follow him. And she, Naomi, is one of those people identifying as a follower of Yahweh. She uses that covenant name that was revealed here several times, but not in Moab when she goes over there. They just go looking for food. They're desperate because their stomachs are hungry. And she goes over there with two sons, and we don't know the story of of how it all happened, but they get married to women from Moab as well, and Ruth is one of them. And when she does that, she marries into the faith, as it were. I mean, she has come into a family that's following Yahweh, the, the God of all the nations, but in particular, the God of the Israelites, as he's disclosed himself to them. And so she kind of comes into the faith, as it were, simply by marriage. And as she does that, she's exposed to the stories, to the rhythms, to the perspectives, to the ideas of what it means to serve the biblical God before necessarily she even believes in those. Her commitment really to return, as we read in verse 16, is to Naomi primarily. I mean, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth has this amazingly loyal, amazing loyal streak in her, and she says, I'm willing to come over, uh, under the authority of your family, and your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's belonging, as it were, perhaps even before it seems she necessarily believes. And this is really what we do with our children, isn't it? For those of you, when Etta was talking about growing up in a church context, we want our kids to be exposed to the stories, the rhythms, the, the, the beliefs. And when we, when we speak to them, when we teach them when they're really, really young and they're two or three, we say, this is how you pray. To God, let's sing some songs together. Let's do some devotions. Read the Bible. We're treating them as if they belong to the family of God. Perhaps even before they believe. By the way, this is one of the reasons we would uh, say that paedo-baptism is, is valid. And see that even in the Old, Old Testament. That there is something different and distinctive about growing up in a family that believes. And you're treated as if you belong. Come and see what it looks like. We're going to, to invest in you and, and shepherd and nurture you in the, in the things of God. But as we know, belonging can only get you so far. At some point, you must believe. You have to take a next step. You can belong before you believe, but you can only get so far if that's where you stop. And that describes so many people in the church who grow up in Christian families, they never get beyond the point of feeling some sense of belonging. And maybe you never even feel that entirely. Eric spoke of trust, and we have talked about faith in the Bible, those different components. You can have information and content. You can even actually believe that it's true. And so you're getting closer, but biblical faith is trust, surrendering wholeheartedly to that reality. It becomes the lens through which you see everything and the way you, that dictates the decision-making process you have for what do I do next? Where do I go? How do I behave? 
That's what belief looks like. In the, in the book of John, uh, the, the word believe comes up uh, to have faith in, pisteo, so often, but it's an active reality. This is an active belief. Is this faith yours? You know, I, I get to teach 14, 15 year olds in, in a classroom environment. It's a worldview class. And for me, I love that age because they're starting to, especially these kids who've largely grown up in households that do ascribe to a, a biblical faith. They're starting to ask, do I really believe this? Is this really my faith? And they do that because they look at the culture around them and it's giving a completely different storyline to what it means to be human. What, what it means to, uh, what we value, what, what's important, what matters most. Who am I? Who defines who I am? Where do I get my, my sense of worth and dignity? And you know, that's, that can be a longer struggle than just those years, but it seems to me you're starting to think a little abstractly and, and kick the tires on faith and say, is this just something that's my parents or is it really mine? Perhaps you simply can't see what others see because that belief is not your own. It's just what your family has always done or how you identify culturally. You know, whole nations might say, yeah, I am a Christian because I am a citizen of fill in the blank. But faith is not really your own. And I don't know how or when this faith perspective kind of sunk in for Ruth, but it's interesting because she starts adopting the language of faith as well. Even in verse 17, after we read verse 16, where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, Yahweh. She's using the language. She's beginning to say, I will follow this God. Perhaps more than just because my mother-in-law does. And we see that come out a little bit more in the verses next, but she's in the environment of faith. In fact, in this first, first chapter, Naomi refers to Yahweh in verse 6. She heard in Moab that the Lord had come, Yahweh had come, to the aid of his people. In verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters, go back, may the Lord, Yahweh, show kindness. Verse 9, may the Lord, Yahweh, grant that each of you find rest in your home. Even in verse 20, towards the end when she's returned, don't call me Naomi. But the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has taken this away. Her whole perspective is built around the fact that there is a God who is with her everywhere and who is involved providentially in everything that happens in life, both in the good things and in the bad. In the times when there is plenty and in the times when there is want. When life is coming and her sons are coming into the world and she names them, she says, I've got two sons. And then when she buries them, two of them, a husband and her two sons, she's in a foreign land and all that she felt there is taken from her. Can you imagine? I can't. Naomi believes and her belief leads her to see God's hand at work everywhere. Sometimes we're just considering this, you, you believe, but in belief, when you believe then, it opens the door to seeing. In, in other words, you might put it this way, if you believe, you see things differently. And as you believe, you see things differently. If you are, you're belong, okay, you're stepping into belief, and then you just see things 
It changes the way you look. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you buy a car, a certain kind of car, and you start driving around, you're like, wow, there's a lot of people have this car. But you, you never even noticed it before. I mean, short of some, like, fancy Ford Mustang or something like that, too. I mean, we, we, we acquired a Toyota Venza from my parents. Didn't even know the car existed, hardly. And all of a sudden, like, where did all these Toyota Venzas come from? It's because I am looking differently. I, I have an identification now with a Toyota Venza, and I see it because I'm, I'm looking for it. This is what faith is like. The author of, of the book of Ruth, and Ruth, as she kind of enters into that faith, she just starts seeing things a little bit differently. Naomi's already begun to do that. And the author of Ruth invites us into that kind of perspective, the encounter with God throughout the rest of the book where she begins to see him at work. It's amazing. Like, look, for example, at Ruth chapter 2. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. This was the custom of the day for those who were widows. There weren't a whole bunch of protections. It was a scary time in the day when the judges ruled, and yet they said you can go behind those who've already gathered and pick up what you have left. But it was dangerous because you didn't have a lot of protections, and it could be stolen or you could be abused. It was the wild, wild west. And so this foreigner who doesn't even speak probably the language of that time or is learning it and just struggling is going to these fields without any protection at all. And then it reads on to say, Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, that's, you know, when Tony shared his story a few weeks ago, and I said, I always think of Tony saying, but God, but God. As it turned out, she happens to show up in a field with a guy named Boaz, who, who owned the field, and he just so happened to be in the line of Elimelech. I mean, you see where this is going, don't you? If you haven't already read the rest of the story, Boaz is going to provide her protection. He's going to... He's going to see not just the beauty of her physical reality, but more importantly, her character. He is won over by her dedication and devotion to this mother-in-law. There's no benefit for her to come back, and that's attractive to him. And Boaz, as it just so happens, if you even look in verse 4, just then Boaz arrived, and he greeted the harvesters, and what's his greeting? Yahweh be with you. The Lord be with you. And, and it, it, it's as if the author is trying to say, Ruth is starting to see Yahweh, the covenant God, his faithfulness, even in these things that seem like they're just happenstance. Nothing is happening without the hand of God at work in it. And in chapter 2, we hear the phrase finding favor three times, all from Ruth, Ruth's lips. That word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. We've already seen it once here, and then she says it in verse 10 and verse 13. She's using the language of faith as well now. She's used the covenant name and the concepts. 
If you believe, you see things differently, and as you believe, you see things differently. Okay, so you might belong, you might believe, you might see, but as Winetta queued up so nicely, life can still be hard. <laughs> you know, you, you've, maybe you, you belong, you're identifying with that covenant name, I'm one of God's children. And I'm not just saying that because it's a culturally acceptable thing to do. Actually, it's part of who I am. It defines my life. And I want to see his hand at work in everything. And yet, life can be hard. In chapter 1, Naomi already believes, sees God's hand everywhere. Yet she wrestles with life. One second she's offering blessing. And the next, she's pining in bitterness. I mean, it's no wonder there's three deaths and ten years covered in the first five verses. And when, when Elimelech and Naomi leave from Bethlehem, they have their sons with them. They marry Moabite women. There's a promise of family and a future, and that's all taken away from her. So she's bitter. She's deeply wounded. She comes back, as you saw. She says, don't call me Naomi. I want a name change. Call me Mara. That's an incident from, the old te- from, from Moses' life, too. Mara, bitter, where the water tastes bitter. It's meant to give life, but I feel like I'm drinking death. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. This isn't how life is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. Life's hard sometimes. Faith is, is real in the midst of it. Think of how many people, I always think of this walking down the aisle, I've said this before, there's not a single person I've married who says we're walking down the aisle to get divorced, and yet half the marriages end in divorce. That's in the church. People can't have kids, they desperately want it. Those who, don't, who have kids and get pregnant don't want their kids. Something's wrong. People know that terrible and dark providence of a child who dies before they do. And we know the basic theology. Sin entered the world. It's brought awful consequences. And the ultimate consequence is death. Separation. And David, a man's after God's own heart, it asks the question, as we've seen before, how long, O Lord, how long, how long? Job was a righteous man. He loved God. He sacrificed. He gave everything to the Lord. And everything was taken from him. His whole family. Because of anything he did. It's confusing. And even he says at one point, after he praised God in in chapter 3, why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He's really struggling. He doesn't understand. He wants to die. And, and this is a man of amazing faith. And Naomi's struggling. 
even though she sees it's hard. And yet we see in the Bible that hard is often where faith grows the best. It's the soil where faith is tested and grows. I wish it weren't. <laughs> Naomi struggles profoundly with loss and bitterness, but she clings to faith nonetheless, and she experiences the blessings that come of deep friendship. And she sees God's provision, and I'm, I'm afraid that when things are taken from you, you see God's hand most clearly at work because you have to, he has to show up. He has to show up. I mean, Jacob, remember him? He was fleeing for his life. And he encountered God when he was going to sleep in a rock in a dark place. He didn't know what was next. All he knew that there was hardship behind him and he had no assurance of what comes next. And Joseph, beaten and left, sold by his brothers in a pit, imprisoned, wrongly accused, can't even imagine for years on end. And that is the place where for both of them they began to encounter God, a life-changing encounter with God. You can't explain it any other way. It can't be something I've done. There's a thousand applications here and they may seem tried in comparison, but if God's your father, if he's the object of your faith, he cares about your failed tests. <laughs> he cares about acne on the day of prom. He cares about bad health news and poor job reviews and broken relationships because he enters into our, our mess in the person of Christ. He doesn't run away. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. He doesn't bury his head. He goes toward us. And there's a freedom in, in, in faith to explore it and to question, absolutely, but also to find comfort. That's part of what it looks like to make faith your own. The, the test of faith is where do you go with your questions when it seems like there's nowhere else to go. Faith grapples with God, but even in the midst of it, faith looks for God's provision and frankly sees it more clearly when we're walking in our weaknesses. And that's part of what it looks like to make faith your own. Sometimes the hard stuff's where God's provision's more obvious. A famine led to Moab where wives were provided, the death of sons led to the provision of Ruth, where Naomi experienced a depth of relationship like no other. Their poverty led Ruth to the field of Boaz, where God provided food and a husband eventually. And their marriage led to a child, where God provided ultimately salvation for the world. This is no mistake here, but there's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of heartache attached to it. I mean, maybe you know this in Ruth chapter four at the very end. In verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And then in verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king of Israel. The one of who, who would eventually from his line the line of David, Jesus would come. Born, born in Bethlehem. Thousands of years later, God's provision through the hardship 
of this person's life. And of course, they would not have seen that all come about. But this story is not wasted. There is no wasted experience. And, and faith has an opportunity to see that. Sometimes it looks dark and it's hard to see. But faith can see that. This one who came would say, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. No more bitterness. The living water from whom you can drink. And this well will never run dry. That's an invitation to relationship. That's an invitation to make faith your own. Not just attached to somebody else's. But to drink deeply from Christ, who is himself the well. At the end of the day, faith must become your own. And it looks different for Naomi than it does for Ruth. But faith does become their own. It does not need to be born from tragedy, but it can sustain you in the midst of it. And it becomes the very soil from which blessings grow far beyond the scope of your own vision. That's, that's the hope of faith, too. Your faithfulness, even when things are hard and you can't see what happens next, somehow we believe and know that God, because of his word, is working in the midst of it in ways you may not ever see come to pass in your lifetime. But here's an example of the significance of that perspective and that reality. I tried my hand at a poem. I'm not claiming this is good poetry. I don't even know what good poetry is. But I just put all these things together like this. Belonging before believing. Believing leads to seeing. Seeing might be hard, but hard is where faith grows best, making faith your own. And just trying to put together the story of Ruth, a lot of it coming from from chapter one. And even in in my own life, grateful um, for God's provision and protection. Years before me, so yesterday my gramps turned 100 years old. Some of you have heard that before. We've been sort of talking about him turning 100 for a couple of years now and wondering if it would happen, and uh, and it did yesterday. And there there was a write-up. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and... He's in a, a care facility. He's very independent, but, uh, but living there, too. And this is the message that they wrote. We're hosting a drive through birthday celebration for one of our residents at 1 p.m. on Saturday, January 30th. Our fellow neighbors, members of the community, and uh, the Tualatin, I don't know if that's how you say that, but Valley Young Marines will be driving through our roundabout to wave honk and say happy birthday. Malcolm Mac Champagne is turning 100. Wow. Mac is a veteran. My, I'm named, my initials are after him, MAC. Mac's a veteran of the last class of the Army Air Corps, which subsequently became the Air Force. He and his crew were shot down while on his 15th mission. Most crew members topped out at seven. He survived jumping out of the plane with his parachute and was captured shortly thereafter. Mac spent 19 months, two birthdays, and two Christmases as a prisoner of war in Germany. He lived through terrible conditions and, quite frankly, faced death several times. When he returned home, he brought, his, he brought his faith in God with him, stronger than ever, and made a great life for himself and his family. He raised his kids, worked hard, and also became an ordained deacon and taught Sunday school for many, many, many years. 
He recently received the first round of vaccination for COVID-19. He's a fantastic person. We're so blessed to know him. His life is amazing. We hope you might want to help us celebrate his 100th birthday and honor his legacy. I guess I'm emotional for lots of reasons <laughs> this morning, but you know, my, my granny and gramps told me they prayed for me that I'd become a pastor someday. And I think of, I wasn't a believer at the time, you know, of just how other people have invested in me. And I don't even know about it. And, and there are probably plenty of opportunities for them to doubt whether this would ever come about. <laughs> um, just with, uh, you know, life and whatnot too. But it's an encouragement to me because I think of Ruth and I think of the dedication and perseverance to just doing the next thing and the faith that impacted generations to come even though she couldn't see it. And it gives me encouragement to do something very similar and to say, say gratefully thanks to those who've done that for me. And you might be somebody who's got the opportunity to invest in that kind of way in others, and I hope you will. Even if right now it doesn't look like faith is real, um, God is faithful, and he is certainly at work. Um, so I texted my gramps, happy birthday, welcome to another century, uh, yesterday, and I hope I, I get to see him sometime soon, um, for sure, but I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to celebrate his life. Father, we thank you for um, the book of Ruth. I'm grateful for the timeliness for me of reminders that you are with us, that you're faithful, that my, my, my calling and our calling is to, is to be honest with you, uh, but not to lose heart and um, to, to know that your grace is sufficient. I, struck by Ruth saying she found favor with you, this grace that she knew in her, her life. We want to know that same kind of thing. We want to make faith our own like that. And we stumble we, we do, and we sang at the beginning, why do we so easily forget to cast our burdens on the Lord? You care for us. And I pray for those who feel like you're distant from them, even as Winetta said, to recognize our proximity is more a drawing away from you, not a you drawing away from us. And we draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. We're assured that in the scriptures. So draw us sometimes we feel like we can't do it. So we need you sometimes to draw us, to pull us in to you. And, and we thank you that you're pursuing us this morning in some way unique to each of us. And yet collectively reminding us of the truth of these life-changing encounters with God in your word and in our own midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.